3: People live in a world of their own making. Frankly, that seems to be the problem. Welcome to Angry Planet.
0: Hello and welcome to Angry Planet. I'm Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt. We've talked a lot on this program about electronic intelligence. The amazing stuff you can do with satellites, user-generated content, and sophisticated software. Nice. Nice. But we've left out all the men and women who still do work on the ground all over the world. Paul Colby is here to remind us about human intelligence and the role it plays. Colby is a CIA veteran, having worked in the Directorate of Operations for 25 years before moving on to private industry. He's currently Director of Intelligence Project at the Belfer Center at Hart. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Great to be with you guys.
0: Well, I'd like to eventually get to the impact of human intelligence in the war in Ukraine, but you've had some unique experiences, and I was hoping we could start there. Sure. Okay. So you were Chief Central Eurasia Division. What does that mean? What's the hmm. actual job?
1: So at the time, <laughs> CIA was broken into couple of different directorates so you had a director of operations which was focused on human intelligence collection had A director of analysis which are the folks that put together all source intelligence to produce finished intelligence assessment for national security community and the president um you had a director of support which was uh taking care of uh all of the business operations of the agency how you establish facilities how you travel how you put in communications how you have security and you had a Directorate of Science and Technology, which was focused both on big-ticket uh, collection platforms, but also in supporting operations with things like communication devices, disguises, things like that. And uh, so, going back to your question, uh, what was Chief Central, Area Div- Central Eurasia Division? So, Director of Operations was broken into geographic components, and Central Asia uh, encompassed former Soviet Union, former Warsaw Pact, Balkan, Central Asia, So I was responsible for operations that took place uh, basically in areas of the uh, former Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, and Balkans.
3: And what year did you start?
1: I came on board in 1984 uh, under Reagan. Bill Casey was director of CIA at the time, and the agency was going through a rebuilding period after the drawdowns
3: uh, post-Vietnam. So really... you you lived through many different changes in both the CIA and in central europe
1: yeah uh, yes when i came on it was uh you know full on cold war uh no one expected the soviet union was going to uh go away let alone collapse um uh and then there was a post uh, cold war era that period in the 90s when many were declaring end of history and peace in our time and no longer had a need for a CIA because we had faced no more threats in the world. Uh, and then uh, 9-11 uh, came along and the agency uh, switched to 20 years of primarily counterterrorism Does operations.
0: Does that, ha- is that how it operates? I mean, I just was thinking there's this with the FBI most wanted list and it sort of reflects what the FBI cares about. It's not that this person is actually more wanted than that person. It's just we're doing terror this year. So does
1: does no. CIA doesn't decide to do we're going to do terror this year. Uh, I mean, the focus, I mean, it's not rocket science. It's really focused on uh, what policymakers and particularly what the president needs. So what are the things that are foremost on their agenda? Those are the things that CIA is going to be focused on. And you can break that down into near term uh, uh exigent you know quite pressing matters disrupting terrorist attacks that are going to happen uh, countering intelligence operations uh, designed to steal u.s secrets um anticipate uh oncoming war uh, but then you also have long wave issues you know what's the trajectory of china technology and its implications for national security over the next 30 years so you yeah, have both Near-term, very pressing, right up in your face issues that the president needs answers to right now. Um and then you have the longer-term assessments of how do we need to be formulating U.S. policy over the next five, 10, 20, 30 years?
0: Hmm. So let's talk a little bit specifically about your job. If that's cool with you. So wow. What did you do? What's the actual job as a chief? And does do everybody does everybody know what you're doing, meaning like, you know, uh, are you living with a fake beard somewhere in an undisclosed location or d- does everybody know that that's your job?
1: Yeah, well, I'm talking at a real beard right now. Um, the um, So most operations officers are working under some sort of cover, it can be diplomatic cover, it can be commercial cover. But when you're in the field, uh, you don't go away around wearing your CIA t-shirt and advertising where you work for, for lots of reasons, right? Um, it's a clandestine service. It's designed to steal secrets. It's designed to conduct espionage in places that don't want you to steal their secrets. So um, operations officers in particular uh, tend to spend most of their careers undercover. There comes a point in time when you're at a certain level and, and, um uh, uh have you know a certain number of scars and exposures and things like that that cover really doesn't mean so much anymore and in some cases can be um, a burden and a distraction so by the time I was leading a division in CIA you know I was declared IE the official representative to dozens of intelligence services had met with dozens of different intelligence officers from dozens of other countries who knew that they were dealing with CIA um so, it's yeah, there's a point where a cover is important and a point where uh it's not needed as much. How do you even get into this line of work? Oh, that's a great question, so it's uh you know there's a million different paths in um mine was you know some ways accidental, some ways uh, intentional I knew I wanted to be working overseas. I thought I wanted to be working in the state department um uh Process for all of the agencies, both at the time and now can be very long. So I did a bunch of other things while I was waiting. I I worked in a ski patrol. I whitewater rafted. I worked in hotels. I dipped chrome in a factory. I did lots of different things, uh, which in the end, I think helped prepare me for a CIA career. But most importantly, I think the agency needs folks who've been around a bit. They tend not to take folks straight out of college. They want some real life experience. And it's good to have, um, you know, a few scars, a little bit of scar tissue and, and some, uh, experience with failure because the intelligence business is a really tough one. Um, and everything, you know, all grades aren't A and you're often, uh, uh, operations, uh, often fail.
0: So it's not like, uh, movies that show people from a particular part of Yale are selected from campus and immediately start working at the cia there's no you know sort of secret cabal it's not all skull and bone no there i mean
1: way back in the day sorry during the times of oss there was you know uh you know a, um, a phrase that cia is uh, uh, pale yale and male and it wasn't entirely wrong there was a lot of self-selection from i believe the schools uh bill Donovan, who started the oss which was the World War II forerunner of the CIA conducted, uh, sabotage and intelligence operations behind lines in, in, uh, in the Asia, uh, theater and as well as European theater. Um, it did select a lot of folks, um, uh, from, uh, their own circles, uh, uh weirdly enough, heavily, um, uh, many of them lawyers. But now the agency needs a much different workforce, uh, being a global agency with the necessity to work everywhere in the world. Um, we need to be able to have the languages, the, uh, uh, the ethnic backgrounds, the cultural literacy, uh, that enable people to blend seamlessly uh, in, in any number of different scenarios.
3: What was your motivation for getting in? Why did you want to get in?
1: Uh, I thought it was going to be really interesting and fun. It sounded, like, it sounded like a cool job. It was pretty naive about what it would actually entail. But I wasn't wrong. Um, and I wasn't disappointed in that. I actually left law school to join the agency, thought I would come back after a couple of years of bouncing around, but it was just so exhilarating. Uh, the stakes were so high. The people that you worked with were of such high quality. Um, and it was just so satisfying to be, have a, uh, to be part of something that you felt was bigger than you. And also it was focused on a mission uh, that you felt was important. So it was, um, uh, really addictive um, going to different places, uh, learning different languages, being involved in different, um, different operations was fantastic life.
0: When I watch a show like the Americans, I'm not going to ask you, is that real? You know, it's really like actually the question is for me, is any aspect of it accurate? Is there any small yeah. part of something like the Americans that is what the life's like?
1: Well, there's a couple of things that were accurate. So it's obviously Hollywoodized, but the fact that there were Russian illegals, uh, an illegal is an, uh, an, uh, uh, an intelligence officer who was working without official cover or without diplomatic cover. So the Americans portrayed uh, two persons who came over uh, to the United States, um, Soviet uh, agents who uh, pretended to be. Uh, I can't remember what their characters were, but one, you know, one was a housewife or oh, no, they were travel, travel agents, right? So pretty, pretty good cover. Um, but they had no protection in case of arrest in real life in 2010. Uh, 10 different couples were arrested and the, uh, in one of the greatest counterintelligence coups in CIA history, one of the greatest counterintelligence defeats for the Russian in history. Uh, they were arrested help. Uh, for a while and then swapped for American agents, i.e. Russians who'd been working on behalf of American intelligence services, uh, who'd been captured and were imprisoned by the uh, Russians. Uh, they were swapped, uh, for that. So that, that there's a kernel of truth in, in that. The other kernel, the other piece that was, uh, I think well done, um, were the relationships that you saw between, uh, different individuals, relationships in particular between, um, the, uh, officers and their agents on both sides so the fbi officers relationships with uh people he was dealing with their relationships in terms of how they developed people how they manipulated them how they recruited them how they tried to keep them safe um there was a lot of elements of of reality there
0: did we do the same thing did Did we do the same thing in terms yeah as as the united states you know i mean we're we doing the same thing
1: uh intelligence services all have similar methodologies all work in similar ways uh, all use similar tradecraft and techniques
3: what what does a day look like and i guess what does a day look like in 1984 and what does a day look like now
1: well it just depends on where wh- where you're at whether you're in in the field or at headquarters but i think probably most interesting is in in the field so uh if you're in a so say you're in a, um, uh, a country somewhere in in Southeast Asia or in Africa, you're with a station. I mean, your role is to be, uh, if you're an operations officer working at a station, primary job is to collect human intelligence, uh, to run the uh, agent networks that let you know the plans and intentions of issues that you want to, that they're important for national security or for national policy, uh, to be able to spot, identify, and recruit those agents to handle them effectively so a typical day every day is a little bit different but you'll have a you know you may have a, a a cover job that you're working that um sort of presents your face to the world um and then when that job is over at night you may be out uh meeting people you may be out uh, developing relationships you'll be out drinking late into the hours uh forming uh, uh forming long-lasting bonds um you're always trying to understand what makes people tick you know, what are the things that motivate them? Uh, What are the things that drive them? What are the things they're afraid of? What are the threats or risks that they face? What are the problems that they have? All of which can be used um, as you work them towards developing a, an official relationship, an agent relationship uh, 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 with the agency.
3: How do you decompress from that? I have, I'm, how
1: do you decompress from that? I get Probably the same way everyone, everyone else does, you know, you've, you know, you find uh, with, with friends and with family and with uh, activities and sports and travel and just, you know, I think it's the, the same as with everything. I mean, you, you go about in the message. I think one of the interesting pieces of it or, or difficult pieces of it for people is the need to compartment different parts of your life. Right. So there were entire parts of your life that you don't tell your wife about that your kids don't know about your best friends don't know about some of the. Best things that you do in the course of your career, um, nobody but a very small circle of people among your peers or uh, within your, you know, within your unit or organization, uh, ever know about. And so you have to be able to, um, uh, uh, you know, handle those two things at once.
0: So let's just say that you're working as, uh, you know, covertly. Does the person that you are supposed to be, if they need a vacation, if, like, you know, if you're working, like, a regular job, they get vacations, too. Do you do a fake vacation, then?
1: Do you do a fake vacation?
0: (laughs) Or do you actually get to go and relax? Uh, You do get to go and relax. Sometimes you
1: do go on a fake vacation where you're ostensibly going off, like, on vacation, uh, but you're actually going off to do a job somewhere. Um, So that's that's happened. There were times where I would... Uh, You know, to the outside world, I was taking a trip to the United States uh, to see family. But in actuality, I was going off somewhere else to meet someone in some
3: dark corner. All right, Angry Planet listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this.
2: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.
1: That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parents plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH One dot com. That's UH one dot com.
3: All right, Angry Planet listeners, we are back. Does the does the popular perception of the CIA kind of an American culture, and I know it's mixed, uh, but especially like coming in in 1984, right? We're we're just kind of coming off of the church committee stuff. Uh, how how did that affect you and what did you what do you make of it? So the church, if folks
1: aren't familiar, church committee were uh, congressional investigations in the 70s, uh, which uncovered uh, abuses in the CIA and in some cases breaking the law in the CIA. In the fifties and sixties and seventies and, and, and some different programs were revealed. They call it the, the family jewels. Um, and in response to those hearings, uh, congressional oversight was established, um, and, uh, some additional sort of controls and restrictions. But the popular perception is that the CIA just, you know, it's a rogue elephant, just runs out, and out of its own, does what it's, what it wants. But actually CIA is entirely responsive, uh, to direction from the executive, i.e. the president of the National Security Council, um, and then the different combatant commands that need support. Um, so the CIA is a little bit like a Swiss Army knife in terms of um, it's pretty small, um, but it has a great uh, ability to be nimble and flexible and responsive, much more than uh, almost any other component of the U.S. government because of some of the special authorities that it has, but also because of the culture of uh responsiveness to mission and responsiveness to needs and folks it's what folks sign up for it's what they want to be doing so a team with you know sort of within days 9 11 teams uh cia teams with embedded special forces going into northern afghanistan uh to meet up with the lines to launch the campaign against the taliban
0: question about how the cia's troops i mean is that accurate um, how do you work with another you know uh Special operations force is, is that something that's smooth? Do you call ahead and say, Hey guys, we're going to, you know, so don't, don't bring your, you know, troops in the same location. Um, it's just interesting because it sounds like in some ways you're doing the same jobs as other parts mm-hmm. of the government. Sure. So the, the
1: one component of the CIA within the operations directorate are the, uh, it uh, used to be called uh, special activities division. These are, uh, former military operators, operators, tier one operators or former SEALs, former Delta, uh, former Marine recon, uh, who've left the military and are now working in the paramilitary division, paramilitary, uh, uh component of the CIA. Um, uh, and wh- how is that different with the U.S. military does? Well, uh, one is they're able to operate, um, uh, with very low profile. And conduct the operations, uh, engagements, training, etc., um, outside of the public eye, um, and again with a great deal of, of uh, flexibility and with additional authorities. Uh, and they, you know, they were uh, used in in uh, Vietnam, um, in the Balkans, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and just about every place in the world that you've seen threats manifest uh, to America particular terrorist threats um, they're a, a very high speed very high quality very highly motivated uh, group of individuals um, quite small um, they work very they have very close relationships uh, with their counterparts in US military and uh, and you'll see different missions will have different mixes so sometimes you might have units that are working together sometimes you might have uh, military officers that are embedded uh with those with those units, but um it's uh kept separate uh because of the additional authorities said CIA has that, that the military doesn't and because it can operate more secretly.
0: Cool. So I was wondering you had worked in the Balkans uh I'm gonna guess that was during the uh the various wars in the Balkans as opposed to just mm-hmm. hanging out in the Balkans. Um, were there, there any lessons that you learned from that that then apply to Ukraine? Or am I just saying, you know, these are Slobs? Maybe there's, you know, some connection there.
1: No, I, I think there's some, I think there's some real lessons from the Balkans that, that we're seeing repeat in it with Ukraine. So for, first, history matters, right? Americans tend to not be that focused on history. And you know what? We have a hard time thinking, you know, five or 10 years back, let alone, you know, 50, 100 or 500. Um, in many places in the world, history from 100 years ago, 250 years ago, and farther back, is still living history. Um, is still part of culture, still part of identity, and there's old grudges that come back. And we certainly saw that in 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 the Balkans um, when uh, a country that had been under communist rule under Tito, you know, a unified, actually one of the more successful and prosperous socialist states. Uh, but, in the thrall of milosevic 's nationalist rhetoric uh splinter apart into different ethnic components um didn 't necessarily have to go that way um, and, and splinter in a very violent fashion um we 're seeing some of those same lessons of history play out uh, with ukraine right now i i the way I think about the war in ukraine is that um Folks for a long time said, well, the Soviet Union broke up and it was amazing that it was done peacefully. Well, I think we're seeing the extended breakup of the Soviet Union and some violence that goes with that. It was just a a delayed fuse, if you will. I think the other piece, and I touched on it, it's the power uh, and insidious nature of nationalism, how addictive and destructive it can be for populations that feel aggrieved uh, that have resentment, that maybe are looking at their neighbors and are resentful that they're doing better and are searching for a reason uh, for that. And we've certainly now seen uh, Putin play on the nationalist card um, in Russia um, uh, to such an extent that he was, you know, in, in a bit of skewed history, dialing back a thousand years. Uh, trying to erase Ukrainian identity, saying that there is no separate identity of Ukraine separate from Russia apart from Russia. Um, and launching a war, which is, I think, you know, much more about that identity and what uh, Russia feels as a threat, existential threat to it, not a military threat from NATO, though that claim that exists, but an identity threat. They think that a prosperous Western oriented Democratic Ukraine poses a profound threat to an authoritarian, um, uh, state capitalist, um, uh, state-controlled society that you see in Russia now.
0: So, if you were Russia and you were getting ready to invade Ukraine, what would you do? I mean, from an intelligence standpoint, how do you get rid? <laughs> To How do you, what do you do and, for the ground, you, you know, to prime?
1: <laughs> yeah, I hate to give them any pointers because they're really screwing it up, you know, on their own, um, pretty well. Um, what, what, what are, so, you know, what, what, are, what are, what are mistakes? I guess, you know, part of it is what, what are mistakes that Russia made in this? I, first of this was a colossal intelligence failure on, on Russia's part. Um, they believed their own rhetoric and messaging that there were, you know, millions of Ukrainians who are simply waiting for Russian liberators to roll into Kiev, um, who would welcome them with, you know, bread and salt, um, which is sort of Slavic version of, you know, flowers and kisses. Um, the, uh, you know, dead wrong on that. Uh, they were dead wrong on Ukraine's capability to fight and will to fight. Um, they were dead wrong on the stability and strength of Ukrainian leadership. They thought Zelensky was a clown. They thought he was nothing more than the, uh, sitcom, uh, character that he had portrayed. It's also one of the great ironies of history that Zelensky, you know, essentially auditioned for his role as president of wartime Ukraine by playing a pr- an accidental president in, uh, uh on TV. Um, yeah, it's really something to go back and, and, and watch some of those, those episodes. Um, what other mistakes did they make? They they believe their own propaganda about the strength of their own forces, you know, so they've gone, you know, since Putin came to power, they've been on a systematic rebuilding program to take what was the Soviet army and its equipment and to build, you know, what they saw as a more modern, more capable, more flexible force. So they had all the trappings of it, right? They went, they uh, uh, didn't eliminate the draft, but they tried conscription, still had conscription. Uh, but instead of everyone being they tried to form a core of a professional army, i.e. people, what they call contracting and contracting contractors, you know, folks who sign an agreement and are, uh, and are volunteers essentially. So they tried to build a volunteer force. Uh, they modernized with weapons, but they didn't change many of the things that, uh, (laughs) that, that we've now seen to be real Achilles heels for them. Uh, there's still centrally a central command and control troops at the ground level. Units have very little initiative, very little authority and huge disincentives for taking any uh, decisions or actions, uh, because all, uh, all blame blows down. Uh, they, um, uh, their equipment actually turns out to be really poor, uh, much of it coming out of, um, uh, poorly maintained stocks. Uh, their leadership has been abysmal and the effect of corruption in the services, uh, is, um, uh, hard to overestimate. They're so. There were recently uh, a member of Duma, that's their parliament, their congress, who was complaining, saying, well, you know, what's happened to the two million uh, winter uniforms that we, you know, authorized and, and paid for? Well, I'm pretty sure that those uniforms are being sold in a flea market somewhere in uh, uh, Guangzhou or Xinjiang province um, because of the uh, the level of corruption and incompetence is is huge. That all said, it's a big army. It's nuclear armed. It has, you know, huge firepower. Um, so while they've made tremendous mistakes, the war is not going to be over quickly despite Ukraine's success, I believe.
0: But I'm just really what I'm wondering is, do they, were they set up so that they have operatives inside like the Ukrainian intelligence service? I mean, do you do some kind of prep? You know, it's like we're sure. coming. So we better send no, they- Paul in to do X.
1: The Russian intelligence services would have had um, uh, vast operations within Ukraine. They would have recruited agents in Ukrainian security services and the military. They would have had um, GRU, that's their military intelligence services, operatives on the ground, spotting targets, planning sabotage. Um, they would have been reporting back on Ukrainian preparations, locations of, of, uh, of military units and, and uh, fortifications. And supply, um, and they would have been providing reporting back on, you know, what they expected to happen politically. There was, there's been reporting that there were assassination units that were in place and that were working to uh, to uh, kill Zelensky on the uh, the very eve of uh, of the invasion, um, but that they were out, identified and neutralized. Uh, so yes, there, there's no doubt that you know, just as by virtue of history, but also of language of family ties, of contacts, and friendships, that there have been a lot of advantages for Russian intelligence services to work in and operate in Ukraine. That said, Ukrainian counterintelligence services have been really active, and it looks like quite successful in identifying and neutralizing um, uh, many of those operations. Have you been surprised at how any
3: of this has played out?
1: Sure, yeah. I've, I've been surprised by a lot of it, how, how it's played out. I'm surprised at the, the level of Russian incompetence, um, that at their overconfidence, that their belief that they could take Kiev in three days and, and, uh, you know, essentially have a, a palace coup and, and, uh, that it would all be over. They completely underestimated the will of Ukrainian people to fight. Um, I've been, um, uh, surprised at how slow they've been to learn lessons. So they quickly retreated to both. Retreated, but also, uh, retreated to old Soviet doctrine, which is, you know, essentially line up massive amounts of artillery, obliterate everything within a particular geographic square and then move in. It's what they did in Chechnya in the second war in Chechnya, where if you've seen the pictures of Grozny, they simply leveled the city, uh, to, uh, to take out the Chechen fighters. Um, I've been surprised at, um, and have not been surprised at their ability to repress dissent uh in in russia uh vast state mechanisms to uh you know to to, to uh, uh in both intimidate or uh folks from protesting to have extremely um uh, draconian uh criminal uh penalties for you know standing alone and holding a sign that you know might even suggest criticism What what surprises me is how many people still stand up and and protest. Um, But I think over time, the support for the war uh, is uh, going to erode as more bodies come back and as the true economic cost comes into play.
3: And Poland, what happened in Poland yesterday? Uh, From what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong. Parts of anti-missile defense systems that were Ukrainian landed in Poland and killed some people.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, yeah so Russia has been, uh, because they've been unsuccessful on fighting the Ukrainian army. Uh, it looks to me like their one of their main strategies for trying to win the war is to take out as much Ukrainian infrastructure as they can. So lights, heat, power, water um to make a cold dark winter for Ukrainian citizens to uh, undermine their morale and to reduce support for the war and to reduce support for Zelensky. It's had exactly the opposite effect. It's it's strengthened the determination of Ukrainians to uh, to fight Russia and to take back um every inch of their of their land that they've lost. Um they're not being intimidated. But nonetheless, you've got, you know, a third to uh uh, uh you know up to a third of uh ukrainian citizens without without power as we go into a very cold winter who is counting on that it's really a a cynical and cruel campaign so yesterday uh uh, this is just after the uh uh g20 um summit they launched uh uh, reports of a 100 cruise missiles armed uh, armed drones in targeting ukrainian civilian facilities uh ukraine uh, tries to down as many of these as they can with anti-aircraft, uh, missiles with, uh, with, uh, anti-aircraft weapons. It looks like, uh, one of those systems, an S-300 service to air missile system, uh, 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 either, either hit Russian munitions, uh, or ended up landing, you know, four miles inside, um, Poland. So it does not look like it was a deliberate, uh, Russian attack. It looks like a, you know, sort of collateral, you know, unfortunate collateral damage from the scale of air warfare and combat that's taking place in Ukraine. The only thing that surprises me is this hasn't happened more.
3: Are you worried about this thing expanding?
1: Yes. Yeah. It's very, re- it's an extraordinarily dangerous situation. Look, you've got, you know, uh, massed conventional combat, uh, on European territory. Uh, with one of those combatants being nuclear armed, losing badly and making, uh, not thinly veiled threats about use of those nuclear weapons. And so that's why you've seen, uh, uh, efforts across U.S. government and other governments to dissuade and deter, uh, Russia from employing nuclear weapons in any circumstance. Um, but the potential, as we saw yesterday with, you know, the immediate conclusion, that folks jumped to was that this is a russian expansion uh of the attacks this is testing nato uh you know this is a uh you know could be an expansion of the war you could have you know accidental situations end up uh um escalating quite quickly part of the reason why you saw uh president biden and others being very cautious in their preliminary assessments saying let's wait till we have the facts in you know, we completely support Poland. We'll pull together folks. We'll do everything we need to do to defend NATO, but we're going to determine what actually happened before we, um, uh, uh, rush off.
0: So I had only one more question, Matthew, if you have anything else, uh, let me know, but I was curious about your career after you left the CIA. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, from the, bio i read it sounds like you basically created a cia for bp the big petroleum company i mean is that essentially did you do something like that and are there private cias out there
1: let's so we'll take a step back in the private sector uh there's every bit as much of a need for intelligence uh i.e. good information uh, for decision making as there is in government. So when executives are deciding, is it safe, you know, for us to work in this to send people in this location, to open up a plan? Uh do we face threats from terrorism or from violent crime or from civil unrest or political instability? These are all questions that are as pertinent for uh uh companies across the world um as it is uh as it is for government. And so you see a a quite quiet, I think probably underappreciated, but, but um, rapidly evolving and rapidly growing ecosystem of private sector intelligence companies and capabilities. Some of them are vendor companies that, that um, you know, provide, you know, essentially outsourced services, and that can be everything. For, so you think about companies like um, Planet Labs that provide geospatial intelligence, that provide uh, imagery, uh, satellite-based imagery of different locations. That's intelligence. Not that many years back, that capability would have been among the most expensive and most classified in u s government. So the remember the old spy satellites, the pictures of the Cuban, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but states, i e you know uh, superpowers, had a monopoly on that. Now, everybody who's got an iPhone has even more powerful capability as you pull up Google Maps or uh, Google Earth or whatever, whatever other platform you want to use. So that's an extraordinary revolution. And companies are using that kind of capability uh, in thousands of different ways. They're using it for environmental monitoring. They're using it to uh, monitor methane emissions. They're using it to uh, understand deforestation. They're using it to understand uh, water uh, and resource issues. Um, in the same way, um, you know, companies op- often operate in, in places that are, you know, dangerous obscure, opaque, kind of, have uh, bad governance or highly corrupt um, it's really important to be able to have a capability that lets you navigate through those environments in a uh, in an ethical, legal and safe manner and so that's that's why you see these intelligence capabilities building up. Um, intelligence is nothing more than um, uh, information collected and analyzed in response to a question or requirement.
0: And so, so we're not talking about hit teams.
1: We're not talking about, no, we're not talking about hit teams. No, but that is the popular conception. When you talk about intelligence or you talk about intelligence capability, they oh, this must be, you know, espionage. It must be criminal and illegal. It must be, uh, uh it must be violent. And it's in, in the private sector. It's none of those things. Um, it's, uh, simply using different capabilities. So social media, for example, you know, you think, you, you know, NSA and, and, uh, Russian FAPSI and GCHQ, they all collect signals intelligence. Well, signals, uh, 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 social media is essentially open source signals intelligence, um, that can be used to help make better decisions. So there was a, I mean, as, as an example, um, there was an evacuation in a particular Middle East country, uh, which was uh, undergoing violent, uh, change and a company needed to get its people out, um, uh, uh, to safety. And so uh, we're able to use real time social media pictures of roads, of uh, scenes in airports, of different pieces to understand, you know, uh, where you would be more safe, where you'd be less safe uh, to help get people out. So there's that, that's, you know, purely an intelligence uh, mission and capability. So, and the limitations in matter are only limited by the creativity, the amount of data that's being generated every day that's available. Uh, and that can be used and analyzed against the right questions, um, are unlimited. And I think in many ways, private sector is outstripping government in terms of how it gets used. Belling, you're probably familiar with can? Oh, you're not. You absolutely need to be. This is a group of, you know, started out of a guy's kitchen table that was interested in what kind of munitions were being used in Syria and using, you know, pictures being posted on social media has now turned into an unbelievably effective and powerful investigative organization, uh, that has had, uh, some reporting coups, I would call them successes, uh, that, um, uh, uh that any intelligence agency would be proud of using entirely open source, uh, methods and technology. Yeah. And I mean, they, they really are amazing. I mean, the, the, and, and part of it is, I think that, um, you know, when in, in government agencies are so focused on secret information and on the information that they can collect through their exquisite capabilities, whether it's human or technical, highly classified, very expensive, often quite risky. Um, but if you don't have access to that, as Bellingcat and Cat and private companies don't, you have to be more creative in, that, in terms of how how do you answer this question or solve this problem? And what you find out is if you're not tender to the, you know, to this, you know, security leash and and uh compartmentation and secrecy leash, uh and you let your mind roam free about what's out there and what can be collected um uh, openly yeah, then uh, it's amazing what can be done.
0: Paul Colby, thank you so much for coming on to Every Thanks, Jason. taking us through all this.
1: No, it's a pleasure. Thanks Jason. Thanks Matthew. <laughs>
3: that's all for this week angry planet listeners as always angry planet is me matthew galt jason fields and kevin It was created by myself and jason fields if you like the show please give us nine dollars a month on substack it's angryplanet.substack.com or angryplanetpod.com you get early access and commercial free access to the mainline episodes the bonus episodes and uh the occasional post really does help us keep the show going it is a labor of love uh we do love doing it We are kind of downshifting now into the holidays. Anyone who kind of works in media knows that people stop answering their emails after Thanksgiving. So it's a little little bit tougher to book guests. Uh, We will get out what we can, and we will run some of our greatest hits. We've been doing the show a long time. There's a lot of great episodes that need a little love, need some audio remastering. And uh, we think you're going to like what you hear over the holidays. So I think we'll have a couple more before the end of the year. And uh, then we will come back strong in January. We'll see you then. Stay safe out there.
2: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello?